SHSS podcast. Let's talk learning. Today we welcome Steve Redmond. Tell us a little about yourself. Getting old, I'm 55. I'm a long distance endurance athlete. I live in Ballydehob with my wife, Anne. I have two kids, Sive and Stevie. They're both in college now. They both swim with me. I played a lot of rugby in my sporting career and I got into triathlon after I retired out of rugby, got too old, too slow for rugby and came to figure out that I liked long stuff. A friend of mine was training in Loch Ayn for English Channel. And it's something that plays, has been in my mind since I was your age. Could I ever swim in English Channel or do that kind of thing? And uh, trained away with him. And that's how I got into long distance swimming. Realized that I liked being out there by myself, surviving by myself and seeing how far I could go. What's your best memory of your school days? Well, it's kind of strange, kind of like you guys. I went to a convent and it was a boarding school. It was a boarding school and I went to a convent and it had just gone co-ed in Castle Dermot in County Gildare. So it was a landlocked county, but uh, it was great. We only had, there was only five or six guys and 40 girls in each class. It had just gone co-ed, you see, so it was very small guys. And we uh, kind of learned to survive for ourselves and got on with each other and sorted out problems for ourselves in this big school. Like we had over five, 600 people in the school. We had no sport to speak of really, no rugby, no football and stuff like that because the classes were too small for guys. So we got into basketball. That was probably my best memory of it. I played a lot of basketball in the convent. We drove nuns mad. We, a couple of nuns left because of us kind of thing. So it was, a, it was a pretty interesting year. I should have probably been beaten into the Christian brothers in Carlo, but I talked my parents into letting me go to this place. And it's funny, uh, you've come full circle and uh, you, would have, you would say to yourself now, would you have done anything different? And you realize you wouldn't have done the, the way you went. What did you do when you left school and why? Kind of, I thought I knew everything when I left school and I, I went into Calbrough Street and did a bit of hotel, hotel management. But unfortunately, a friend of my father's had a couple of bars in Dublin, so I started working for him. I found the attraction of money much more interesting than the attraction of college. So I came out of college after two years and started running bars. I was not into any sports whatsoever. I was very, very uh, heavy, drank a lot, ate a lot, spent all my time working, trying to make money. So sports kind of took a back seat till I hit my 30s. Unfortunately, I should have probably stayed in college, but I didn't. And as I say, that's what happens years ago. You didn't have to. You could survive and get along without a college degree. And nowadays it seems to be everybody has to go to college or everybody has to have some sort of eye on the, where they're going. So that's what happened to me. And I ended up in Ballet de Hub in West Cork. You played rugby in the past. Tell us about that. I played rugby. I started playing rugby in West London, in Wimbledon, for an old boys club called Rains Park. And I had never played rugby before. And this friend of this guy that had a gym said, come on and play rugby. And uh, put me into the front row against the, a French international player. I'd never played, never scrummed down before. So that was a baptism of fire, which didn't go very well. We lost badly, but I was hooked on the game. I learned to drink Perno. I don't know if anybody knows about Perno because he was French. <laughs> so I learned to drink a lot of Perno that night and kind of got hooked into rugby, played a lot of it. But in that day, it wasn't like it is now. It wasn't train, train, train. It was a much more social event. 
you know, you went trained twice a week and you played your game on a Saturday and then you spent the whole night socializing. Let's put it like that. I got into London Irish, played up for the seconds in London Irish in Kempton and kind of got a bit more serious there, but still very much more socializing. The, the first team, you know, it was nigh impossible to get into anyway. So we played seconds and thirds, did a lot of drinking and a lot of traveling. We came to Kinsale to the sevens, things like that. It, it was a, an eye opener for me playing with guys that had gone to school and played it in school and went to college and played in college, like the old private schools like Black Rock and Old Belvedere and these places like that. So I realized that uh, I had missed all that in my life, but I quickly caught up with these guys and probably maybe went a little bit further than they did. That's rugby was a big part of my life when I came back over here. I played for Skibbereen and uh, I was getting into my 30s, 35s then, so I was getting older and slower, but still massively enjoyed it. And it, it brought me on to other things. Sport brought me on to everything else and to where I am now. What motivates you to swim at such a challenging level? I'm not any good at anything else, to be brutally honest. I'm useless at everything else now. As I say, I got too old for rugby. I hurt my knee. Can't run anymore, so I couldn't do... I got into triathlon after rugby. We did a lot of triathlon. We did the, the Lost Sheeps and Skull and up here and in Cork, in Kinsale, and did a couple of Ironman, but I, I can't run anymore. My knee is gone. So, as I say, a friend of mine was training for English Channel. We trained away. We train in Loch Ine in, in Skibbereen, or we train in Skull, or we train in a couple of hotel pools down in Baltimore and in Bantry. Unfortunately, he never made it. John Carney, uh, he had three attempts on it. He was 500 meters off, a kilo off shore when they pulled him the last time, and he never went back to it. Maybe it was a midlife crisis thing or something like that. I don't know. You know, you, these things are all ahead of you guys. You're too young to even be thinking about midlife crisis. As I say, I always kind of had it in my, uh, my mind to see how far I could go. And uh, English Channel was there in front of me. Didn't get in the first time. I went over, spent a week in Folkestone. Never go to Folkestone if you can get, don't go near it. It's a terrible place. <laughs> you spend a week in a hotel looking out the window. And it was the time before you had your everything on your phone. It was an old, you know, you had to look at the television for the weather forecast and still ring home to see what the weather was going to do. So we spent a week there. The, the thing was, it's, it's around two, 3,000 sterling to do the English Channel. You have to pay, say you're the skipper and you're the, the, the guy that keeps me going in the, in the water. So you pay the skipper and he, you put your full trust in this guy that know, he knows the tides and he's going to bring you on the right tide and things like that. But you could go out and the wind could come up 10 hours in and um, you, you'll get pulled. I really didn't know how far I could go. The, the English Channel was 20 hours, 20 hours in the water. But on the second trip, I brought my wife who was a very, very quiet lady until she has me in the water and she wouldn't let me out. Basically, she told the skipper, leave him there. If he wants to get out, if he moans, leave him there. And I did moan. For around eight hours, I could see a green light in front of me on the coast of France and I couldn't get anywhere near it because we were stuck in a tide. She said, throttle on. And there was no way of getting onto the boat. If you touch the boat, the basic rules of English Channel Swimming is you're in your skins in a pair of togs, cap, goggles, and grease. If you touch the boat, the swim is over. So you have all this time and the boat is only maybe three or four meters away. So they wouldn't let me near the boat. They throw your feet into the water. You drink that, you throw it back on the boat and they throttle away and you follow the boat. I didn't know I could do it. And I didn't, you know, it was a, a huge thing to get it done. The first swim, I had a couple of friends that, uh, it's a difficult story. 
we got the swim 20 hours and I was coming back on the, the boat and they were keeping me awake because I, they didn't want me to go to shock and be hospitalized after the swim because I'd been up for two days. And a friend of mine called Thomas Brown rang and he said, Steve, we've been watching your swim on the, the internet. You can watch the trackers you see of the boat going across. He said, it was brilliant you got the swim. He says, I got great news today. I got all clear for testicular cancer. I knew Thomas had been sick. He said, this is just a brilliant day. Fantastic. It was like winning the lottery maybe five times over. Six weeks later, he died. So you, this doesn't affect you guys, but as you get older, you lose things. That hit me badly to lose this guy. He was a very fit guy and uh, he was just gone. So that's how I got further into the swims. I didn't know about North Channel that we could swim from Northern Ireland to Scotland. Stupid bloody idea. Jesus, who wants to do that? But it's there. That's basically uh, how I fell into the swims, you know, and uh, you guys, as you guys get into maybe broadcasting or whatever you're going to do, you'll, you'll get obsessed with being better and, and you want to go further. That's basically how it works for me. I, I get obsessed with everything I do and try to be better at everything I do and push it further. Unfortunately, it's, it goes a long, long way. Tell us about the challenges of Ocean 7. Yeah, Ocean 7 was, a, as I say, a thing that we discovered, not and it discovered us and consumed my life for around five years, like uh, Christmas dinner. I'd be there sitting, thinking about getting into the water the next day in Loch Ayn and how we could get a swim. There are basically seven of the most difficult channels all around the world and kind of the equivalent of the seven peaks. And no one had ever done all the seven before, so... It was put to us by an American guy when we got the North Channel in 17 hours. It was put to us, now you've done the two hard ones, why don't you do the other five? But basically there are Suguru Channel in Japan, the Cook Straits in New Zealand, Catalina Island in LA, the Molokai in Hawaii, Gibraltar, English Channel and North Channel. So you can see they're all dotted around the world. And that's basically why nobody had ever managed to do them all. And they're all equally dangerous and equally different. For instance, North Channel is around 11 degrees water temperature. I put on, I was 19 stone and I lost two stone in the water, just trying to stay warm in the North Channel. Cook Straits is full of great whites. Molokai is full of tiger sharks. North Channel is full of jellyfish. So there's loads and loads. Jellyfish is the size of your table here, but his legs or his tendrils are way over at the trees there around 200 yards away and you swim into him and you just get stung like you've put your hand into a swarm of bees so and it gets into your tongue and on your nose and it's it's great fun i'm not painting a great picture of it but you wanted to know the difficulties so the, basically the time is the difficulty it's a stupid idea to think can i swim for 20 hours or that far or can i swim 20 miles because you never swim in a straight line you swim with the tide the tide takes you so far one way then it brings you back the other and uh, that's basically the, the, the dangers of it would be that you, you go into shock or you, you kind of just can't finish it. Say it's, it's, it's basically like, say you're going to do your leaving cert in two years time. Yeah, it's basically everything you've trained, you're doing for the next two years comes down to the leaving cert, right? And the same with the swim. You train and train and train. You do everything you can think of. You go to Loch Eye in the middle of the night. You try different food. You go to different places. You do long swims. And it comes down to this one 10, 12 hours or so 20 hours in your life, whether you can make it or not. It becomes very, very important to you, but nobody else, because the world will keep turning whether you make it or not. But uh, that's basically the difficulties. And we were very fortunate that I live in West Cork, which is completely sport mad. And 
the, the swims took on a, a life of their own. And after Thomas, after we lost Thomas and we did the North Channel, we got Gibraltar and then we realized we couldn't do anything else because I would be end up divorced and living in a, with a black bag in a bus shelter because my wife is quite an angry woman at the best of times. You know her, but anyway, my friends from the Tri Club from West Cork Tri, who, which are up here now really, took over the, the logistics of getting me to these places. So, and they thought, we'll try something different. We'll try and do Catalina Island and, El, and Molokai, which is in Hawaii, in within two or three weeks of each other, which is completely balmy. You know, normally it takes around six months to recover from a swim. That's what they did. They sent me out there and uh, they would look for help. The great thing about Irish people is wherever you go in the world and you ask for help, the Irish will help you. It's a very strange thing. We went to America and a guy from uh, Skibreen who was into musicals, his father was head of the GEA in Skibreen. He put us up in a hotel. We never met him until two years ago. Same in New Zealand, the Irish down there. Everybody fed us, put us up in a room, looked after me. And it's a very humbling thing, but Irish people always want to succeed. And that's the great thing about being Irish. You know, wherever you go, you get on and you achieve. And it's a very strange thing when you ask for the help. It just comes out from everywhere. That's the, the difficulties of it. And um, it, it, we, we broke it down into bite-sized parts. We do them two channels and then we come back, front raise again and go to the other ones. Because we were up against... Darren Miller and Penny Palfrey and around five or six other swimmers who were far better than me. Really young, sponsored by, Darren was sponsored by Mercedes in America. We were kind of, didn't realize there was a race, but it was a race against yourself as well. Because nobody had the North Channel. Penny came over and she tried North Channel three times and she nearly died there with the cold. She was a fantastic swimmer, you know, fantastic swimmer. Darren was the only one that did all the seven without failing. Like I failed in Molokai on the first attempt and I failed in Japan uh, on the first and second attempt. So it's, 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 it became a race against myself and a race to, to, to prove that we could achieve something, you know, in Ireland, you know, you're kind of, as I say, I had no coach, we had no money. We had only a small 16 meter pool, which is at 11 strokes and turn. You were spending seven hours training, swimming and them kind of things kind of going out of your mind. How does it feel to be a trailblazer for other aspiring swimmers? Yeah, I'm not really a trailblazer. I'm. I. They call me my my nickname in the water is uh, Driftwood, because I go so slowly, and they, they reckon that I'll get there eventually on the tide. If you leave him in long enough, he'll moan, but he'll get there eventually. It it, it kind of is. It's very humbling when you see guys coming to you and looking for advice of you. But the great thing about open water swimming. It's not like other sports. For instance, Darren Miller was in Japan when we were swimming Suguru, and Darren was a fantastic swimmer, a fast swimmer. And he had left, he got the swim the day before we attempted the second attempt in Suguru. He left all his gear, every piece of kit that he had, flasks, food, everything with us. That was five, six, seven hundred dollars of stuff. It wasn't a whole lot, but it was just the, the, the fact that he gave everything to us and, and left so we could achieve. And he was racing against us, you know? So it, it, it was, that's what the thing, and everybody, like say, if you come to me and say, well, I want to swim English Channel, I say, well, this is what you need to do and this is how you have to go about it. And you know, if that doesn't work, you have to tr try and do something different. So everybody helps each other. Trailblazing, 
it's 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 kind of a normal thing for me now unfortunately and uh, uh, the only thing for me is the sea you have a, a lady up here in clan the girl that does the the goes out onto the ice the doctor do you know that girl she was with pat falvey she, she trekked across the south pole i need I, I can't live for instance i can't i live come from carlo i can go up to see my parents and i can only spend a day two days there because i have to come back to the sea so that's my affliction now in, in the winter now i call it the bitter and twisted winter training is down from it's down to around twice a week 10k two swims maybe whereas in the summer it's 50 50 or 60k a week up in the morning at four o'clock swim before work swim in the evening don't get talked to by anybody but if you don't do it you're, you're in your mind you're not ready for what you want to do or how far you want to go i can't stop i, I and i don't see why i should stop because as i say i'm, I'm no bloody good at anything else Tell us about Fastnet, the final challenge. Yeah, Fastnet, Fastnet is another obsession. and uh, I don't know. Do you think you're normal people? Mm, yeah. No, no, no. no, no. <laughs> there's no such thing as a normal person. Honestly, there's no such thing. And uh, Fastnet, I can see it from where I live. And I can see the light shines in my window at night. When we started swimming in all this stuff, we, we, we did uh, six hours from English, from Fastnet into Baltimore. That night, my father-in-law died after that swim. So it has funny repercussions in my mind, it locked into my head. No one had ever taken on swimming from Fastnet or going to Fastnet and going to Skull. So during the Ocean 7, we had training swims from Baltimore out to the Fastnet and into Skull. And no one had ever tried these kind of things and no one even knew that it could be done, but we, we got them, uh, we did two of them and became the first person to ever do them. And nobody has ever swam Baltimore, Fastnet, Skull. So that's just another obsession. And now we have brought it on into a, a kind of world-class swim, whereas you guys can come down and do a relay. You could go out to the Fastnet, we throw you in, you start and you finish. And you'd go in and you'd do an hour and then you come in and you do an hour. And, but now we've, what, 25, 30 people came down and did Fastnet this year. It's turning into one of the, uh, an iconic swim. Everybody, you say the Fastnet lighthouse to somebody, they know where it is. We did it the day after the boat turned over in the Fastnet yacht race there a couple of, around seven or eight years ago. And all the Americans were on the pier watching us go out, start the swim. And they all thought we were crazy. But then we, I think all Americans are crazy anyway, but. That it's it's another one of these things that um, has built slowly and now it is kind of a, a permanent in my life. I wrote a book about it. Well, I wrote two books, but we amalgamated the whole lot into kind of one for the time being about the swims. And uh, I think I'm, I've done around 27, 28 swims on the Fastnet now. So I know the water well there. It, it's, it's just, it's probably one of the best swims in the world. There's no shark out there. There's jellyfish. All right, they won't kill you. The cold might kill you. The water we have in Ireland, there's, there's no like it. The, the nearest place is New Zealand, as far as I can see. It's, it's just the attraction of being somewhere where no one can get you. And you have to survive. When, swimming is a very different thing from everything else. Like, say, football or running or, or whatever you do. You can stop and you can talk to somebody. Whereas in swimming, if you stop, you get cold and uh, you won't start again. And if you stop swimming, you have to tread water. And in, in swimming... Everything else is secondary except breathing. So it kind of, your brain stops worrying about, oh, I have to do this tomorrow, or I have to finish that maths assignment, or I have to, you know, play a game of football the next day or something like that. The basic thing is breathing and surviving till you finish. And uh, that's how your brain closes down and stops worrying about other things. And that, that becomes secondary. So basically, um, 
Fastnet is probably uh, my life, I suppose, at the moment. Again, now, as I say, I'm a compulsive obsessive. That's not a very good thing. But everybody that I've met, and you've met a lot of people I've seen who you've interviewed, and all these people you've interviewed, for instance, I, I think David Putnam is one of the most obsessive people I've ever met in my life, but because his brilliance shines through. And you, ha you have to go that far to be brilliant. I'm trying to get there. As you, as you were saying, you swam from Baltimore to Mizzen and described it as the hardest thing you've ever done. Why this swim in particular? I have a skipper called Kieran Collins in Baltimore and he's the, the skipper for all my fastest swims. And around this time of year, last year, he put this idea into my head, would we be able to swim from Baltimore to the Mizzen head? which is via the Fastnet Lighthouse, which is just another crazy idea. But he does this to me. He puts it into my head and then I go training for the winter and he rings, text, rings me in January and say, how's training going? And it's looking good. And then he tells me he has three or four dates for the tides because you need to get the perfect day for these swims. So that's how he does it. He sets, he puts the seed into my mind. He knows I'm crazy and he knows that I'll think about nothing else. And then he comes back to me and he says, are you ready? That's the day we're going. It was a very difficult swim. We swam for, from Baltimore out to the Gasconon and got caught in the Gasconon, which is the gap between Cape and Shirkin. It's a, a tidal gap. We swam across tides. Normally we would swim with a tide to the fast that would push us out and come back in on it. But this time we had to swim again three hours into the tide. So we got stuck in Gasconon. The wind, the, the wave was just banging into my left ear. So I was deaf completely for the rest of the swim. It took nine hours to get to Fastnet against the tide, which had never been done. Don't worry, um, it's okay. <laughs> I'm starting to look afraid. <laughs> but uh, it, it just didn't work out that day. I had a very kind of strange summer with training and probably hadn't got enough done. You're never ready for things. You find sometimes you're just never ready for things. You have to go and try them and see how far you can go. And that's basically what I do a lot. The wind changed direction too early after we went around the fast net. We were three hours, 15 and, 15 and a half hour swim. We were at Browhead, which is another 4K to the mizzen. And we were stuck in the tide there and we weren't going to get anywhere. So we pulled. When you fail, uh, oh, I always think a little bit of you dies, unfortunately, when you fail. As I say, I'm kind of crazy. I think about nothing else. And for the first two weeks, for the, the, day, the night after the swim, I've, I wanted to know when I could go again. So this is, I was lying in bed, the wall, the ceiling was moving towards me because I was, uh, I needed a drink. I was, what was that word I'm looking for? I hadn't taken enough salt water, salt on anyway, and uh, I was, the, I was hallucinating. So fortunately the walls were coming towards me, but I still wanted, I was still thinking about when I could get the swim in the next two weeks. My left shoulder went down, been work, been injured really since. So I didn't get a chance to do it this year. So now, as I say, we're into the bitter and twisted winter trainings. And I think about nothing else but that swim until next year. But the next year, the plan is to come from Mizzen to the Fastnet. Dehydrated, that's the word, sorry. As you get older, you will forget these words, you know. And, uh, you know, God damn it. But uh, that, that's what happened. We were stuck at Browhead. My wife was on board. Nathan Timmons from Clonakilty was my backup swimmer. He was in trying to keep me going. They, they seen my right arm wasn't working properly and realized I was getting colder and colder and we were stuck in around 60 fathoms of, of very cold water. What happens is the tide brings cold water in from the Atlantic and it freezes you. Unfortunately, we didn't finish it. We, we raised around 9,000 euros for Kieran's sister for the hospice in Cork, Marymount. 
Kieran Collins' sister was up there and unfortunately she died there. But that was the big push for Kieran to get this swim and try it. He calls it the impossible. Now, he likes, you know, as I say, putting these stupid ideas into my head because he knows they'll just dwell in there and build and build and build. And, you know, unfortunately, it really was the, the hardest. I thought Suguru was the hardest because Suguru, the wind comes from one direction, the tide comes from another. You have a current against you all the time and you're in Japan. And if you if you ever go to Japan, you, you are a foreigner. You really are a foreigner. You're too big. You're too awkward. For instance, they thought I was a sumo wrestler, a European sumo wrestler when I went over there. And the food is different and you bow all the time. You never make eye contact. You never touch each other. It's, it's, a very, it's an alien world, but there are great people. All they do is work, work and bow. It's crazy, crazy spot. I thought Subaru was the most difficult, but Fastnet was, was the, the mizzen head swim was just far, far, far more difficult and will be. And we will have to maybe take two months next year to just go work, swimming solidly and do nothing else. You have a real interest in bees. Tell us about that. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I, I, another friend of mine who I, another interest of mine is basketball. I coach basketball. And I used to have a guy called Gerald McCohen as my team manager. And I'd be on the sideline coaching basketball to underage. I actually coach three of your girls here in the school. They'll tell you I'm a very quiet on the sideline. But this guy would tell me, Steve, you need to get a beehive and because uh, it'll calm you down. So I eventually figured I'd get a beehive off uh, this guy in Baltimore. McCohen, Gerald McCohen. And it's, an, it's another one of these obsessional things. I have 10 beehives now. So it's not a good thing, but it, you, you spend all your time worrying about bees and your queens and will they survive? And you go in and you look in and you make tons of mistakes and you can't find, you have 30,000 feet. All bees are female. There's most of the bees in the hive are female. So you have 30,000 women that hate me and they're all trying to kill me and bang off my head and get into me. And I'm allergic to stings as well. So I have to be really careful. It's a stupid, stupid hobby, but it's the most amazing thing to see these things survive. You know, and uh, that's uh, I got into them and uh, I can't get out of them now because they, they self-perpetuate, you know. I actually going home to look at them this afternoon and no doubt I will get stung and my eyes will close. And you know, so <laughs> do things that you frighten you. That's what I always say, you know. Do you have any future plans? Yeah, well, mi my, the, that mizzen swim is the biggest thing now to get that done. And I'm going to do a bit of coaching next year and maybe take it a little bit easier because... I'm not getting any younger, but as I say, my endurance is at a high level, whereas my fitness might be very poor. So I'm going to build that up as well. I'm going to coach a lot more basketball and bring a lot more people to this area for swimming. Because as I say, it's probably one of the best areas in the world for open water. What's your favorite motto? Oh, that would be uh, that guy. What's his name? Anyway, fail better. Do, do something, fail that's the man. Yeah, the Irishman. One of my Gulliver's Travels here. Do something, fail, don't, it doesn't matter. Fail better and keep trying. Uh, I, I would say never, never stop. You can, if you think you're doing enough, I always say to the Katie and Schiffer and the girls, I think if you're doing enough on a court, you're in trouble. Never, you're never doing enough. And it's the same in everything in life. Go further than you think you can go. Push yourself further than you think you go. And all of a sudden you'll be there and you'll say, how the hell did I get here? Like, you know, that's it. You know, it's a, every, everything you do every day is an adventure and kind of enjoy it all. And uh, you meet such amazing people. And uh, that's really what has changed me is meeting the people 
for instance, in, in Cook Straits, I met Philip Rush, who I've never met since. I met him, shook his hand, and eight hours later, we were swimming along, and he was on this small little boat around the size of the radiator here with a 20-stone fireman at the back. That was the support boat, and the big boat was further out. I said, I was looking down, and there's a shadow. And at the beginning of the swim, they tell you about the Great Whites to say, well, Steve, you'll never know that the Great White will hit you until you see his eyes, and that'll be the last thing you kind of see, so don't worry about it. That's their advice to you as you're going into the water. But anyway, I seen a shadow and it wasn't the boat and it wasn't clouds and it wasn't our boat. And I said to Philip, I said, Philip, this, this is, uh, there's something down there, you know, Phil, you know. And as I said, I'd never met him before. And uh, he says, he put his mask on and he, he holds the freeway record on the English Channel, speed on the English Channel. But I met him, he put his head down in the water and he came up with a big smile. He says, Steve, mate, you're right. There's a shark down there, he says. He says, <laughs> he says, a big smile. I couldn't believe it. You're in the middle of the Cook Straits on the far side of the world. And he says, he says, what do you want to do about it, Steve? He says, you know, what do you want to do? He was here first, like, you know. We started laughing at this because it was just outlandish. I said, look, we'll bring the big boat in and we'll see if we can scare him away because this is the only chance you're going to have to do this swim in your lifetime kind of thing, you know. And he, he, he stressed that. He says, if you come out now, that's it, it's gone. I couldn't believe that's a stranger that wanted me to succeed so much. And it's kind of like you guys in school here. You, you have teachers that you might not like. You have teachers that you might hate. No, we won't go down that road, okay? But they all want you to succeed. And that, that's the strange thing about life. Most people want you to succeed. We got on and we, we had our laugh. We cursed the shark. The shark took off when the big boat came in. They pinged him with the, the sonar. Ten hours later, I was around 300 meters offshore. And I couldn't lift my arm. This arm was gone. So I was swimming kind of a doggy paddle with this and swimming with this one. And I thought they were shining the light onto the rock where we had to finish. And I thought they'd give me this, the, the rock. They thought they'd give me the swim. I thought, come on, it's only 200 meters. We'll call it a day. And that's it. You'll say we did the swim. And Philip kind of looked into my eyes and he says, Steve, mate, he says, if you don't finish the swim, we'll drive the boat over your head and we'll leave you here. And everyone will believe us. They'll believe, they'll say, well, you know, oh, we said bad luck, we lost them. That was just the way it is. It has happened before, like, you know. And he said it in a much kind of meaner, more angrier way than that, you know, more industrial, let's put it like that. But we got in there, he got under, he got in the swim for the last 50 meters and he, we hit the rock and uh, we cursed it. We had a cry and he brought me back in on the boat, threw me on the deck, started chucking hot buckets of water on me because I was hypothermic. And he got down next to me and he said something that I always use. He said, Steve, that, that was the only day in your life that you'll ever do that. That kind of really always twings with me whenever I go to do a swim. This is the only day in your life that you're going to have this chance to do this exact swim. Because every swim is different, you know, and uh, life is precious. So that's how I always work things now. And as I say, I haven't much time. You guys are. How old are you? 16, 17? <sighs> I'm on, the, I'm on a bobsleigh on the other side of a mountain without any control or break, and I'm going faster and faster because I have no time, so I have so much to do. That's where I am now, and uh, you just have to go further, go, go further. Do you have a hero? Tom Crean is the man. Tom Crean is without doubt. I'm not going to start talking about him because I start crying. Yeah, unbelievable. To go down to the other side of the world, no radio, go missing for five years, and save his friends with a couple of biscuits and a compass. And you think about, we go out with a phone now and we get lost. And you know, they had nothing. Incredible man. Came home to Kerry, build his own grave, build his own mausoleum. If you ever go over to where he's from, he built his own mausoleum, mausoleum they call it, because he knew he was dying. Unbelievable, you know, and we have no concept of 
how they survived down there, you know. It's just incredible. Shackleton was different. Shackleton was an officer, so it was kind of a thing that officers did, whereas he was a service serviceman. He only got into the Navy because he had no choice. And to go that far, you know, unbelievable. What advice would you give your teenage self? <laughs> to study harder, maybe. I thought I was, uh, I knew it all, you know, and I didn't study hard enough. And as I say, I was in the convent and we were getting away with a lot more than we should have. So I would probably say study harder, study as hard as I possibly could. Thanks so much for coming, Steve. No problem. Hopefully it recorded, did it? <laughs>